Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I am your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. And today, we got a Q&A. We uh, also, our uh, coupon code at Giant Lifting just got bumped up. 10%? 10%. Wow. Yeah, sick. Let's go. Um, They're killing it. Yeah. I don't know why. He just Great texted company. me. He literally just texted me before I walked over here. He was like, hey, just let you know, you got a new coupon code, TCM10. It's going to save your people 10%. Like... Your peoples. Yeah. Let's go, guys. Because honestly, dude, there's a lot of tailored people that fuck with Giant. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, the cool thing, too, is is that um, all my neighbors know about it. Like, because they're local. So yeah. it's so easy for me to tell people yeah. anywhere that people are like, what do you recommend? I'm like, I recommend going there. It's so much more cost effective than ordering shit. Yeah. Because you can just pick it up. For those of you who can't pick it up, I'm sorry. but um, Or come visit us. Yeah. But they actually, I want to say they have a location in Arizona now, too. Forrest moved down there, so he's down there. I know he is. Okay. They're working on it. Yes. Okay. There you go. Um, Travis is over there shaking his head. Like, <laughs> Not no, yet. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> but soon enough. So uh, they do have two locations over here, though. But uh, you can head to giantlifting.com. Um, there is a link in the description for that. That is our specific link. We would appreciate using that. But at the end of the day, as long as you use coupon code TCM10, so the number 1010, you will save 10%. Um, and mind you, their prices are already better than some of the leading companies. Um, companies that rhyme with Og, for example. <laughs> That's just part of the word. <laughs> no shade thrown at them, though, because uh, I have a bunch of their shit here, too. I'm not going to lie. Uh, but we were super fortunate that they just popped up and moved right next door to us after yeah. we started this place. Uh, but they just recently came in and basically were like, hey, anything you have that's not giant, we will take and give you giant shit for as long as you have all of our equipment in your gym. And so they couldn't take everything because there were some things that they just don't make yet. But quite a bit of stuff um, now is giant. And I mean, it's stood the test time. A lot of it has just been, I mean, we've been throwing it around intentionally, right? And um I mean, shit, yesterday was a, uh, a really good test because uh, we were doing the isometric day. So loaded up the yeah. squat, the pins, and just fucking pressed the bar as hard as we possibly can into the, into the rack, um, squatted it into the rack. So for those listening, isometric would be like if, the, if there's – we basically flipped the – the cool thing is, is the pins aren't even here yet. They come in tomorrow, and that's what those are for. So safety pins, for those of you who know, those are you basically just slide them all the way through the squat rack, and it's just it acts like a bar that you can press into intentionally, so you can do isometrics, which is just like picking a range of motion that you want to build strength in neurologically, and just creating as big of a con- contraction in that space, uh, in that range. But what we did is we just took the uh, the long rack. I don't even know what those are. Uh, bar ha- uh, handlebars? No, no. I mean, what are those called? Where do you put the bar onto? It's not a rack because the whole thing's a rack. Yeah. It's an arm. A hook. hook. Or an arm. Maybe it is an arm or a hook. I don't Done know. with the long one that you pushed into? Right. An arm. So, like, the short ones are squat arm. hooks. So, that it, maybe it is squat arm. I don't know. Yeah. But you know what I'm talking about. People, yeah. like, they, they basically just come off the squat rack. You can put the bar in there and then grab it for RDLs or whatever. We flipped it upside down and basically pressed into it. And the squat one, I mean, that's, that's a lot of force. Yeah. Pushing into that as hard as I can. It's not even meant for that. 40 seconds. So if anybody wants to to do something brutal, like I could literally watch the veins in my legs just slowly but surely filling up with blood. And then by the end of it, we just look like I'm going to post a video and just like my legs are just fucking shaking Shaking. so hard. Especially the last like 15, 
seconds is just brutal. Dude, it's like uncontrollable shakes. Like you look like you're doing that those you know those old school like dances in the fifties where they were doing the wobble or whatever it was called. <laughs> you remember that like grease days and shit? Totally, yeah. Um but no, I can't dance. But that's what I imagine it was like. But um brutal. But anyway, I was pressing so hard in that and they they held up really good. So Watch we it. have a ton of stuff in there. Um uh, but we highly recommend you guys check them out. They're great stuff. They're gonna drop he just told me this the other day too. That's why he asked for pictures of us using it. But the I don't even know what they're calling it. A it's a rainbow squad. Uh, it's a cambered bar, oh, but I don't go. know if a cambered bar is like a trademarked word because somebody invented that a while back. You know, just like somebody invented the safety bar and somebody invented the trap bar. Um, it's not. Oh, isn't mm. it? Did you type in cambered bar? Yeah. C A N. There's multiple different cambered bars though. Like this uh, one's like like a straight up straight across and down uh, bar. Maybe cambered just means like shaped. Yeah. Like what's the definition of cambered? I don't even know. But um, essentially, it's a curved bar. So yeah. if you guys have ever seen it, it literally in transit to curve upward in the middle. Oh, okay, there you go. Yeah. So it, it's it's basically like a, a banana, but not that curved. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, like an arc. In a arch. Way. Arch. But basically, if you put do it on a back squat, it just rolls over your shoulder, so you can grab the bar so much easier without trying to like externally rotate your scapula so much, which can some people don't have that range of motion. Yeah. And then on a bench press, it just creates a massive stretch on your chest because once you get, if you get the bar all the way to your chest, the plates are so much lower than yeah. your body by then. Um, but I've been loving that bar. So anyway, uh, they got a lot of really, really good stuff and they keep coming out with more. So um, head over to giantlifting.com, coupon code TCM10. You can save 10% on an already affordable company that is actually really high quality. So I'm excited to, to get you guys that discount. Um, all right, I want to shout that out, but let's uh, let's dive in the questions. Let's get it. Let's. Uh, we got the first one coming from Andrea Martin. It says, "I recently went to a OBGYN, and they told me that the reason for my hormone imbalance is due to hypothalamic. I butchered that hypothalamic. <laughs> I knew you were going to butcher that. <laughs> Am- amenorrhea. <laughs> Say it. Amenorrhea. Amenorrhea. And that I need to regain fat." and weight so that I can regulate my hormones and get my period, but I don't know how to address the nutrition or exercise portion of that. Should I try to increase calories and take a break from the gym for a while and gain some weight? Or should I continue to train while increasing my calories? Should I also reduce my step count? So uh, for those listening, I I, I might even butcher this. Cause I, I think it's kind of like one of those words. Uh, like I say creatine. Some people say creatine. Or Excuse me? Creatine. Some people say uh, hypertrophy. Some people say hypertrophy. Huh. I don't actually know if anybody knows the actual. Is it creatine or is it creatine? Gotcha. I don't fucking know. Anyway, um, the hypothalamus is a part of your brain. So this would be hypothal. Uh, oh, this is going to be a tongue twister. Thank you. Hypothalamatic? Thalam- Thalamatic. Thalamatic. Okay, is it attic at the end? No, it's a mic. Oh, a mic. Okay. Um, I always say I, I never refer amenorrhea to amenorrhea. Is hard too. Amenorrhea. That's all you have to really say. You don't <laughs> even have to say that because um, the hypothalamus is just probably uh, where the root cause is stemming from. But typically, amenorrhea comes from um, if somebody's experiencing like the the female triad, which is typically it's an athlete thing um, where athletes get too lean or they overtrain and hormonal dysfunction starts to happen. Uh, people who do bodybuilding or bikini competitions get too lean from that. So their body fat levels are too low. They get hormonal dysfunction. Um, 
or uh, REDS, which is relative energy deficit syndrome, which is basically just like you've been in a deficit for far too long or too aggressively. Typically, that is less likely unless it's coupled with being too lean. Um, actually, I was just, uh, it's probably not going to air for a while, but I was just on podcast for Mike Matthews podcast. And the whole conversation was just me talking about how I take clients through reverse dieting. Mm. And one of the things that we touched on was this, like people assume that they are heading towards this severity um, when they're in a diet and they start to experience stress or hunger or irritability or libido issues like low sex drive, things like that. When in reality, a lot of those things are actually just um, temporary in their from caloric restriction, meaning their calories are low. They're in a deficit, which is what they want. They want fat loss. Those things are, that's causing the, the energy deficit itself is causing um, these symptoms of fatigue, low sex drive, um, stress, irritability, stuff like that. And the minute they reverse their calories back up, they're going to see an improvement in those. So even if they take a diet break for a week, they will improve all of those symptoms. And if that happens, it tells me that it has nothing to do with your body, phys- physiologically speaking, or physically, like being too lean or training too much or anything. It's just that you're dieting. Yeah. This shit happens when you diet. You know, like when I was at the end of my diet, cortisol was higher, testosterone was lower, stress was higher, my mood swings were more frequent. I was just fucking hungry. I was yeah. in a deficit, but I was getting super lean. That's part of it. Um, the second I started reverse dieting, these symptoms improve themselves. So as a coach, we can test the this the severity of these symptoms by giving them a multi-day refeed, three to seven days, so up to a full-week diet break. And if all these symptoms improve during that diet break, and usually for the at least a half a week after, if not a full week, um, then we know it's just calories. How much of a diet break are you giving these? Obviously, it depends. But yeah. Sometimes if, if I'm just testing it, I'll just give them a few days. So like if I, I meant like percentage calories up. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, typically you go back to maintenance. So there's no percentage because it depends on the percentage of the deficit. So if somebody's in a 10% deficit, it'd be a 10% increase. Yep. If somebody's in a 35% deficit, there 35% increase. However, you know, if you start the diet at, and your maintenance is 2,500, but you've lost weight, then your maintenance isn't 2,500 anymore. So usually as a coach, it's typically experience in, in a lot of educated guesses over the years that allow us to hit that sweet spot. You know, we see the client's trend of weight loss and we can kind of guesstimate where we want to put them in their diet break just based off intuition from coaching for so long. Like we do know the percentages, um, their ranges, but we kind of pick a, a point within this range. So the range is scientific. The point we pick within that is experience-based, you know, so there's no good answer there, but, um, or perfect answer. Yeah. But point being, we'll put them into that for a few days. If, if they're like, oh my God, I feel so much better. All these symptoms remove themselves. Cool. We, we're safe to continue dieting if you want. We're just going to implement diet breaks every once in a while to avoid those symptoms getting too high and that causing negative issues with adherence. Um, but there's no health concern here, right? Um, now, in her case, she has gotten to the point of that. Now, d- does it show her weight? It does not. I chopped down the question so it was just right to it because she gave us a lot of info, obviously. Um, her weight was, I want to say it was 87 pounds mm. total, which... It's very light. Now, I have to preface this with the the severity of that body weight is dependent on her height mm. and her muscle tissue. So, for example, Hallie on our team, Coach Hallie, she is not a tall person by any stretch of the imagination. She's fairly short. She's probably, Hallie, if you're listening to this, I don't know, five. What do you, I'll let you guess. I'm not the guy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, what do you think? Five. Three, five, two. I was going to guess five, 
between 5'1 and 5'3. Yeah. I was going to shoot low with 5'1 and go up to 5'3. I think she is 5'3. But the point being is um, I think uh, I was helping her with her diet a little bit um, not long ago before her wedding. And 93 pounds. What? This example. Oh, okay, cool. Um, I don't know where I got 87. Um, so Hallie, you know, when she was attempting fat loss, she was still 115 pounds, I think. And I'm sorry if I butchered that, Hallie, but I remember her getting – pretty lean for a wedding, you know, and she was still very light. So a lot of people would hear 115 be like, oh my God, it's so light. So yeah, but if you're a female, it's 5'3", that's not crazy, you know. So in this case, if she's 93 pounds. You're you're right. This is a very long one. She started at 93, now she's go. at 87. She's at 87. So um, my point is, if she's 5'7", that is dramatically different than if she's 5'2", right? So if she's 5'2", I'm like, okay, we need to put on 20 pounds, you know, 10 to 20 pounds. If she is 5'7", we need to put 20 to 40 pounds. You know what I mean? It's a totally different ballgame because the height depends on that. I got to imagine she's probably not that tall. But no matter how tall you are, that's probably too light. And that's why your OBGYN is, is recommending this, is saying that you have this hormonal issue. And I'm not surprised because that's probably too lean. Now, to better answer the specific question of like, what do I do here? All of the above. Literally all of the above. So if anybody has a situation where they are experiencing amenorrhea or um, any issues with their thyroid, with their menstrual cycle, if they have uh, body dysmorphia, they have REDS, so relative energy deficit syndrome, the female athlete triad, any of these things that I've been talking about that are typically metabolic dysfunctions from dieting too long or too aggressively or getting too lean in general or overtraining. Any of these things require an increase in calories and a decrease in stress. Stress specifically being the, the type of stress we typically look at as positive training, right? So should you lower your step count? Probably. Should you decrease your training volume? Yes. Should you decrease your training intensity? Yes. However, I would probably lean on volume before intensity because I think that it depends on the personality type because you can get away with either. The point is, is you have to reduce both a little bit or one of them a lot. Yeah. So if you're the type of person that can't not go hard, then I would say we're going to train way less often and I'm going to let you kind of push it. If you're somebody who just needs the routine, I'm going to let you go to the gym a lot, but they're going to be short, easy, simple sessions with leaving plenty of reps in the tank. I'm talking RAR five on everything, right? Um, Either way, you have to reduce training and intensity, period. Um, you need to get more sleep and you got to increase your calories. Um, probably specifically with fat, um, especially, and then carbohydrates as a second. So protein, I got to imagine, usually when people are in this position, protein's probably in a fine place. Um, but protein's not really going to do much for your metabolism or your hormones because it's just going to help rebuild muscle tissue. You need it for vital purposes, but any extra isn't going to create this hormonal improvement. It's just going to excrete as uh, nitrogen basically through your piss or sweat. Yeah. Um, that's why in like the protein overfeeding studies, they pee a lot. And if anybody has ever had to dramatically increase their protein because they were under eating protein, at the beginning of the diet, you probably notice you pee all the time or you're waking up in the middle of the night to pee until your body gets used to the protein. Um, but what they find in those studies of protein overfeeding is these people are sweating through the, their sleep. Yep. Um, so with that being said, like your main things have to be fat and carbs. Fat because fats want to be going to be one of the biggest precursors for hormonal production and function, but also because fat is more likely to store as fat. And you're in a position that you actually need to store some body fat. Like you need body fat in your body to be healthy. So I want to preferentially like 
push fat into your diet. So we gain a little bit of weight and because that's going to help your hormones more than anything. And then the carbohydrates are going to help your thyroid, which is going to play a big role in the metabolic functions. So we do want to increase that too. But ultimately, like, I think you know the answer. I think you're just looking for validation on it. But hopefully I provided that with showing you how serious this is and the fact that if you don't start increasing carbs and fats immediately while decreasing the stress that you're placing on your body, you're not going to fix the issue. Yeah. You know, um, I've worked with plenty of people that really, really struggle with this. And a lot of times they'll even like start to lean on artificial sweeteners or like extremely low calorie foods and stuff like that because it makes them feel like they're revert. Like when I want them to reverse and they start eating more like low calorie or zero calorie foods and syrups and things like that, and they get yeah. full on those things. And it just makes them extremely bloated because they're overdoing those things. I've seen that many times, and it usually happens in these situations where it's somebody who needs to eat more, but they're afraid to eat more. Totally. So, but yeah, you got to jump on it ASAP. It's good, Not a good, good position to be in. All right, let's uh, move on to the next question. It comes from Evan Bierman. It says, can you expand on what it means to take a muscle to failure? failure? Uh, like sometimes I have to stop because the muscle is burning. Sometimes the weight is too much. Sometimes certain things hurt. Sometimes I'm just plain out tired. Is there a sp- particular type of failure I should be trying to hit? Yes, there is. Um, so we'll start with that, and then I'll kind of run down the different aspects or, like, sensations you get when you're approaching failure and how to try to work through them. Um, so the particular type of failure that you want to hit is technical failure. Um it, it might be actually termed voluntary fa- failure. Maybe that's it. Um, voluntary. F- oh, maybe that's it. Okay. So point being is like tech in my mind, technical failure means your form is breaking down. There you go. Absolute failure is you literally shut off. So imagine you're doing a, can't hold the bar. You can't hold the bar. Like you're doing a bench press and it's just, nope, it's on your chest. You can't, you literally can't do it. The only time I think that those, that type of failure is warranted is when you are testing a one rep max and you are not alone. Um, because if I'm doing a squat one rep max, I can set up the pins or a bench or anything. I can set up the pins if I need to, but I can also say, nope. And then whoever's above me can grab the bar off, off my back or my chest, you know? Um, Otherwise, there's no real point. And I would even argue, like, I could do a whole podcast on why 90% of people don't even need to do a one rep max. It's, like, literally pointless. And there's actually research to show that one rep maxes actually produce less strength gains than three rep maxes. Ego. That's it. That's yeah. all it is. So a one rep max is an expression of your strength. Three rep max to six rep max to, you know, the three to six rep range, really, or two to even one to six, but, like, the percentage of one rep max lowers that submax efforts, those are actually producing strength. One rep max just expresses your ability to show it. So it's basically like it's safe for a competition day. Yeah. You don't actually gain new strength from doing that. You just show how strong you are. You gain new strength from doing three, four, five, six reps. But anyway, um, technical failure is going to be when your form gives up. So that would be I'm doing a bench press and my last rep, my shoulders don't stay packed. Now. I do not get injured during this rep, but it doesn't look pretty. That's the easiest way for me to explain it. Like you, you, that, and to me, that's an RIR one. Uh, that would be an RIR zero. RIR zero to me is I'm doing the bench press and I'm halfway up and I have to arch my chest up and I kind of lose the, the stability in my shoulders because I have to like cheat the rest of the rep up. I didn't fail in the sense where it just crushes me, yeah. but I failed because that rep doesn't count. 
That was a shitty rep. But I had to take it all the way to that point to maximize my uh, the, the adaptation I'm looking for because I'm trying to take that to failure. That's why on a usually on a bench press, a squat, or a deadlift, I'm usually like RIR1 at most. And that's like your final rep is solid, but it's a grinder. So like I like push through it and it's a slow grinder rep, but I didn't lift my butt weight off the bench. I didn't like get all floppy with my shoulders. Like it was solid. I could have squeezed out another rep after that but it would have probably either hurt or it wouldn't have even counted because it was just the form wasn't there. Yeah. Um, now, you can also take things to absolute failure where you just can't do it, but it, it has to be specific exercises. So, for example, I'm okay with doing a chest-supported lateral raise to absolute failure if the person is experienced. If the person's a beginner, it's still technical failure to me because, for example, I can take that movement specifically because when you're chest supported you can avoid compensating too much like if I'm standing up I can start swinging a lot but if I'm chest supported I can avoid swinging so that limits my ability to fuck up form and then I can keep a solid form with and just not like having body awareness I can tell myself don't cheat these reps and I can get to the point where I'm like halfway and I literally can't get it up and then I drop right that might be 20 reps in with a 25 pound dumbbell because lateral raises you're not gonna lift very heavy but that's absolute failure. I literally couldn't finish the rep and I dropped it down. But I didn't do the thing where I like lean back and swing it up or like shrug my way up and get my traps too involved. So there's absolute failure and there's certain situations where it's okay to go to absolute failure. And I would even argue that like there's some evidence to suggest that that would probably be the most hypertrophy wise, the most stimulative set that you do is the one that goes to absolute failure. But it takes an advanced individual with a lot of body awareness in order to do that without compensating. Yeah. Because if I wasn't and I did compensate by leaning back and shrugging, now I'm just getting my traps and my spinal erectors involved. So I didn't really take the delt, the shoulder muscle, to failure like I had intended. I almost got it to failure, and then I just fucked up my form to finish the rep, right? Anyway, that would be absolute failure. And at times, it's okay. But for most people, technical failure is the key. Um and then there's there's also – so going through the different sensations you're feeling, he mentioned sometimes he mentally just can't do it. He said sometimes he experiences pain. He or she, sorry if I uh, – Yeah, muscles burning, weight is too much, certain things hurt, and sometimes I'm just plain out tired. Okay, so um, muscles burning, not a bad thing. So there's actually a correlation between lactate uh, production and, and – in muscle growth and it's basically just metabolites accumulating. So when your muscles are burning, it's not a bad thing. Um, and nobody ever hurt themselves from their muscles burning. <laughs> they hurt themselves from overloading a stretch position. And for example, your muscles don't really create that burning sensation on the, the, the stretch or lengthening phase of a movement. So for example, if I'm doing like a bicep curl, I get the burning sensation when I'm at the top because I'm shortening the muscle. When I shorten the muscle, I create more of a contraction, brings in more blood flow that generates more metabolites and, la- and lactate. When I'm at the stretch position, it's stretching. That's usually where people get hurt is they go too heavy and they swing it down or they, they extend too much. Um, but usually that happens from going too heavy and that happens way before you even get to the point where you're burning. So the burning sensation is just lactate. Now, number one, if you're not taking a good pre-workout, you can take something that actually will help buffer that lactate. So for example, shout out to First Form, um, firstform.com slash tailored coach method. But project one is their pre-workout. It has creatine in it. So if you're taking creatine, just note that it has creatine monohydrate, which is actually also been proven to help with muscle hydration, cramps, injuries, stuff like that. So that will help here. But when supplements have um, stuff like citrulline, mainly beta alanine as well, 
Beta alanine is going to kick in and help in a set when your set gets to a certain length and lactate is starting to buffer and create. I'm sorry, lactate is starting to accumulate and you need to buffer it by buffer being like removing it, um, that waste, quote unquote, to reduce the amount, um, not even reduce the amount, but to to be able to handle it better essentially because you're not removing it because that would be disadvantageous, but you're better able to cope with it essentially when you have beta alanine. That's what it does. It helps you buffer the lactate um, and flush it faster between sets. So that doesn't generate so quickly next set so you can do just as much volume. But that's a good way to to remove some of that. But ultimately, you just have to kind of grind through that burning phase. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just a mental thing. Um, and that goes back to the pain idea. If you're experiencing pain, I would ask what kind of pain is it? Most people who are newer to lifting and they're starting to really push their training towards failure they're not used to the discomfort of pushing close to failure. And they, they misinterpret discomfort for pain. So they say like, literally, my, I'm in pain. My muscle hurts. I'm, it, it's burning. It's like, no, like you just got a gnarly pump. Yeah. You're crushing it right now. Like keep going, you know, like that's all that is. So if you stop every time a set got discomfort, uh, uncomfortable, you're never going to get close enough or all the way to failure and, and reach your maximum potential. And that's in life. If you, if you constantly avoid discomfort, you're never going to grow. Yeah. The problem with training is that it, it's a feeling. It's not like a, a, a mindset, right? Um, and then last but not least, the, the mental component of it, right? And, and really, that kind of goes back to the whole like willpower idea that we talked about. The second you start telling yourself you can and then you just do it, you'll realize it's like jumping in water. Like, you know, like when you're like so afraid to jump in. Like, yep. I, I can't remember how many times me and my brother would go swimming at like Five Mile Lake back in the day, which is now I look at him like, that's pretty gross. Like, but like <laughs> you like kind of dip your toe in it. You're like, damn, it's so cold. And then my brother would just fucking shove me in. Yeah. And then I'd hit in the water. I'd be like, Oh, that's actually not bad. Yeah. feels good. But when you dip your toe in it, it's, it's mental, freezing. Yeah. So like the second you, you do it, you overcome it and then you can do it again. Totally. Right. Um, now if I was to jump back in that lake tomorrow, it would be a hell of a lot easier. If I waited three months before I jump back in, I'd go through the same process again. So you have to overcome it. And then next week, do it again. Next week, do it again. Next week, do it again. Um, and you'll just overcome that mental barrier. Love it. So I think, yeah, there's like a lot of components to it. But the biggest takeaway, I think, is like you got to go to technical failure more than anything. Some exercises, like just just be smart with it. Like you know what exercise you can go to absolute failure. And you know if you're cute enough with your body to do so. You know, I don't really recommend beginners doing it. They don't need to. They don't know how to. Um, but you will learn but you will learn. And that's why I think the volume thing is kind of funny because like tr more volume equals more results, right? But there's not really any studies on uh, that I'm aware of, of highly advanced individuals, usually because highly advanced individuals are so into training. They're like, I'm not going to participate in your study and fuck up my training routine. But beginners don't need a ton of volume because everything works. So why would you risk injury when you, everything works? Slow it down, focus on form, you'll build. Once they pass that stage, they need more volume, Right. And that's usually studies are usually done on volume for like intermediate people. They know how to lift, but they're not super advanced. And we see more volume is better. But I think as you get more and more and more advanced, you get better and better at contracting a muscle, taking it to failure, pushing your intensity without breaking your form. And those things are so taxing that I think at a certain point you can actually get away with less volume again. So it's kind of this weird bell curve of like you don't need in very much volume and then you need a lot, but then you get so good at lifting that you probably don't need as much again. Um, and that's just an opinion. There's no research on that, but um, I think it's an experience. What's that? An experience. Exactly. There's only experience on it, really. But yeah. Cool. All right. We will move on to the next one. It comes from Leanna. It says, 
how do I know if I'm losing weight, quote unquote, too fast? My body, my goal is body recomp. I'm doing the bulletproof bodybuilding five times female, and my goal is recomp. I've noticed my weight dropping amazingly, just over four kilograms in one month, and I'm very happy with it. I just want to make sure I am retaining muscle and I, I am building. Okay, so four, let's just say, she said just over, let's just say it's four kilograms. That's uh, 8.8 pounds, I believe. Um, Am I right with that? It's four times 2.2. Yep. So it's 2.2 pounds per kilogram. So um, that's really solid. That's fucking about two pounds a week. So 8.8. Well done. That's really good. Just over two pounds a week. That's 2.1 pounds a week. Um, So that's that's really good. But where's that 2.2? 2.2 pounds a week. There you go. There we go. So is that too fast? Well, if you would have told me your actual weight, I would have been able to give you an actual answer, <laughs> but you didn't. So, um, unless you just missed that part, but, um, the, uh, so the, I, I've said this many times, so some people will probably hear this repeated. Uh, the, the best rate of loss on a weekly basis for fat loss is going to be 0.5 to 1% of total body weight per week. Um, so for example, if somebody has 200 pounds, that is one to two pounds per week because 0.5% of their body weight is one pound. of their body weight is two pounds. Once they lose 20 pounds and they are now 180 pounds, that changes to 0.9 to 1.8 pounds a week. So it's all relative to your actual body weight. That rate of loss is going to be a good rate of loss to consistently lose weight week after week after week um, while also making sure that you're preventing uh, hormone issues, too much diet fatigue, muscle loss, performance drops, anything like that. When we go beyond that, um, I think it's pretty difficult to lose muscle tissue when dieting because you have to like literally ignore protein and not strength train. Um, but you are still going to have poor performance. You're going to be more irritable. You're going to have more cravings, worse adherence, um, potential diet fatigue and hormone issues kind of increase like the likelihood of them happening increase. So yeah, I mean, the perfect rate of loss is 0.5 to 1% of total body weight per week. So depending it, on your weight. Yeah, depending on your weight. So if you're if you're hitting that, you're golden. But I would say this. I got to imagine you are because you, you sound like you're feeling really good about it. And if you're doing five days a week of bulletproof bodybuilding, I know your performance isn't dropping. You wouldn't be able to handle it. Yeah. Um, and the only caveat here is that sometimes if an individual is jumping into the diet at the beginning, like if they're at the very beginning of the diet, then yes, we will see a higher percentage in the beginning because water weight. So your first two weeks, you might lose, uh, like maybe let's say you are to lose one to two pounds a week. Maybe you lose three to four pounds the first couple of weeks. And it's like, holy shit, I'm above the normal rate of loss. Do you feel okay? Yes. Okay. Let's wait. One to two weeks goes by. Now you're back to one to two pounds. All that is, is water weight. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people flush water at the beginning, especially if they pull, like if they were overeating prior to starting the diet via carbohydrates, we're going to flush water. If it was via fat, probably not as much, but that's, you know, that's the only caveat. Totally. But um, yeah, as long as you're in that range, you're, you're killing it right now. Cool. So it's awesome. All right. We will go to the next one from hello, healthy food and fit. Uh, it says, do you ha- have to continuously increase calories in order to continue building muscle in a lean bulk? No. Um, so th- I think there's a misnomer of what is required for muscle growth for some people. Um, Especially because, so I would ask you this because this is a good example. Um, when we're trying to change somebody's body composition, what's more important, training or nutrition? Nutrition. Bingo. 
But technically, I just said change body composition. You assumed I, that means fat loss, right? Correct. And I would agree. For fat loss, nutrition is definitely more important. However, body composition could be muscle growth. Yeah. Could be gaining. You know what I mean? And I think that's where people get confused because a lot of times we're focused on fat loss. And so we talk about how it's 80% nutrition, 20% training. I would argue that muscle growth is flipped around. Like it's maybe not 80%, but I mean, actually, yeah, I think it is. It's 80%. You know what I mean? Because I'm not going to get in Spanish. I I was about to say maybe 60, but like I'm not going to go into numbers because you can't, there's no way to prove one or the other. But the point is, is the reason nutrition is more important for fat loss than training is because when you are training during a fat loss phase and being in a deficit, all you're really trying to do is just, you're just trying to stimulate the muscle enough to stay there. You just don't want to lose it, right? And you neuro, neurologically speaking, you want to continue to have strength, which means you don't really need to do much. Your, your strength training isn't going to burn that many calories. So let's say you're doing an upper day and you're in a lean bulking phase and you have a high volume upper day and then you change to a, a fat loss phase and you drop the volume by 25% because you're not taking in as much food and you're just trying to maintain muscle. You're going to burn basically the same amount of calories, like barely any less. Like it's just not that great of a stimulus. Obviously cardio plays a role, but all those things are very hard to accurately track how much calories they're burning where a diet is cut and dry. You're either eating this many calories or you're not. You know yeah. what I mean? Like um, calorie expenditure through cardio or training depends on the day, the weight lifted, the stress, the cortisol, the recovery, your sleep before, how, how much you walked in between sets, like everything, you know? Um, so it, it depends on a lot. But with building muscle, it's not nearly the same because the training has to be specific to the person actually stimulate the muscle enough to grow because now we're not just trying to stimulate it to stay still we're trying to stimulate it to improve yeah. you know what i mean like i mean if if we think of like a car like if you have a if you have a sports car right and it's like you i tell you all i want you to make sure you do is just not let the engine die out just make sure that it continues driving the way it's driving doesn't need to go fast or anything. Most people be like, I think I can handle that. I'm just going to make sure I change the oil and fl- pump the tires and no fucking getting crash. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's simple. But if I was like, hey, I want you to add horsepower. 200 horsepower to it. Yeah. You'd be like, well, shit, I need to bring in mechanic. I need to add things to the engine because I don't know how to do that. That's what training does. Training is like, okay, we need to add volume. We need to change up the exercise selection to be more specific for the person. We need to like, that's where I get into like the limb length stuff that I've been doing a lot of lately is like, Really, really getting granular with what exercise is going to maximally stimulate that muscle for that person's limb length, the muscle belly, right? Those things play a huge role. And then once you get to a certain level of advancement, they get even more specific because now you've kind of mastered the basics. Now I have to take the basics to a new level and maybe even add things on top of that, add new methods, add new intensities, add new volume, whatever. Um, so there's just way more things going on because you have to not only continually create that same stress, but you need to figure out ways to continually increase that stress because as your body adapts to that stress, it's no longer a stress. So you can't just keep squatting for eight reps with 200 pounds. You have to squat eight reps with 220 pounds or you have to squat eight reps and do a drop set or you have to slow the negative. You have to add a pause. You have to do things different. Um, And then with your nutrition for training, really it's like, there's, there's honestly, so she said, continue increasing calories. And I would actually argue that there's more involved with nutrition outside of creating a bigger surplus. That's going to be contributive to hypertrophy than just creating a surplus. And the reason I say it is because if, if you're like, Hey dude, I want to build as much muscle as possible. And we get you on a solid training program. We got that out of the way. Like the, the hard stuff is done. 
your diet. Okay, we're going to put you in 200 calorie surplus, which is not huge. And you're like, well, why not a 400 calorie surplus? Well, because until I ensure that 200 calories is not enough, there's no reason to go more. You're just going to put fat on. Because if I put you in a 200 calorie surplus and you're properly recovering from training and I see that you're progressing in the gym, that means that you're eating enough over maintenance to continually progress and add muscle, right? You're growing, you're building. Now, if I put you in a 200 calorie surplus and you're under recovering, you're not hitting PRs, like you're sore, I didn't make a big enough surplus, yeah. right? But people assume like, okay, I stopped gaining weight. Should I just add calories? Probably not. You probably need to train harder, add volume, add intensity, do something there, periodize it better because eating another cup of rice isn't going to build muscle. Like the act of eating doesn't do anything besides store. So it's either going to store as glycogen to recover from what you depleted or, and that's going to help you build, or it's going to store as fat. We've got nothing else to do. Um, so yeah, no. And I think there's more with nutrient timing, supplementation, recovery, uh, proper macronutrient ratios, things like that play a bigger role from a nutrition perspective in muscle growth than just continuing to increase the calories. So for sure. Yeah. Cool. All right. We will move on to the next question from bodybuilding Gemini says, what are three golden nuggets you'd give to an upcoming certified personal trainer? Ooh. Um, the first one is going to be, um, honestly, the first one's practice what you preach. I think that we live in an, a, a world of, in an age and a time of uh, keyboard warriors. You know, people are just on Instagram, they're reading and posting and they've never done shit and they don't look the part. Like that's, I think that was like frowned on for a while and it was like, you don't need to be shredded to be a good coach. And I agree, you don't have to be absolutely shredded. I'm not absolutely shredded all the time. But if you don't know what it's like to diet, if you can't get yourself lean, if you if you don't have any muscle on your body, like I, why would I believe that you know how to do it for me? Know what it's it's like to go through. Yeah, even if you know the science behind what it takes, I don't believe you understand how to actually get somebody to do it. Yeah, the mindset, the programming, the art of getting somebody to do something is different than the science behind what is required to do something. Um, yeah, that's to me that's like one of the biggest things. I think that there's just there's too much. I don't know. I, I think there's, there's, you, you have to have a level of experience and competency of with yourself before you can do that for others. And it allows you to experience a lot of different things. Try things out, test things out on yourself, new training methods, dieting, supplements, all that kind of shit. So first and foremost, live the part. You are a walking billboard for your own product, literally. And you are a walking role model for every single person you try to help. So if you don't know how to do it yourself and you're not doing it and living it, I think that's a huge issue. Um, even from like coach to coach, just from a respect factor, like, I don't know if you're, if you're lazy, you're not tracking your diet or, or even just like, even if you're intuitively eating, like if you can't do that successfully, if you're not training hard, if you're not like committing time in the gym, getting sleep, doing all those things, like, I don't know. I can respect you if you're not getting sleep. Cause I know a lot of hustlers and successful people and with great physiques and all that stuff that they, they lack sleep because they're just busy, busy. and yeah. they like, you know what I mean? That's the issue I have, but they're, they're, what did you say? Living it way too much there. Yeah, literally. Um, <laughs> and I have that issue sometimes yeah. I try to prioritize it, but yeah, like I think, yeah. And that's, and honestly, that's like my motivation when I do like photo shoots, like, I don't need to get that lean to take pictures. Somebody, uh, I think it was Aaron Stryker. He was like, bro, every day is a photo shoot at your gym. What are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah. Cause like Trav's here constantly doing content, but 
the reason I do it is not because I need those photos necessarily. It's because I want to, like, I haven't died in over a year, two years. I'm going to do it because I tell my clients to do it. Mm-hmm. Best believe I'm going to do it. Yeah. Um, so that's huge. Practice what you preach. Um, the second one is. Are, I, you, are you in maintenance right now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think I finally like reached that point where I'm like, okay, I'm good here. I, I went over and I kind of started gaining a little weight and I was like, all right, I'm going to pull it back down. Um, because I just, I'm not like trying to build muscle right now. Just want to maintain focusing on strength and stuff. Yeah. But, um, number two would be, uh, I guess continued education would be the word for it, but I think it's multifaceted. It's like, you should be learning and studying all the time. I get, I've gotten that question so many times of like, what do you do for, um, continued education? Like, how do you structure studying and learning more? And it's like, what do you mean? I just, I read every day. Like you read training and nutrition every day, every single day. I don't care if it's one blog, it's a YouTube video, it's a podcast, it's a study, it's a, a book that I'm currently reading. I make a point to study training and nutrition every single day, and I've been doing this for over a decade. The research is going to continue evolving, and the methods are endless to apply the research. And the way the methods are taught and executed and coached are different from person to person to person to person. So even if I'm reading on a topic that I've read a million times, but it's from a different coach, I'm going to learn how to do it a different way. So you have to be doing that. And that also can, includes uh, credentials and certifications, you know. Um, I mean, point in case, I just did the CISSN the other day. Like, yep. Not the other day, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. But I don't need to get certified again. But that's been on my bucket list for a while, and I'm pretty fucking proud of it. And I'm proud of the people on the team who have gotten it. Absolutely. Soon, everybody will. Um, but, like, that's a big deal. Like, not that many people can say that they are actually an accredited sports nutritionist. I literally have the highest level of credential outside of a master's degree. It's crazy because I didn't go to a six-year college. You know what I mean? But not that many people are that, you know? That's above a nutrition coach. Yeah. I didn't have to do that, though, because the people who hire us for coaching, they don't say, like, well, are you – are you a sports nutritionist? Like, they don't even ask if I'm certified. Yeah. <laughs> Point in case, practice what you preach, and they don't ask. Yeah. <laughs> they just look at you and they go, okay, I think you know what you're doing. Like, um, so I think that, but I think it's huge to continue getting certified, continue to get uh, education, constantly learning. Um, and then the third thing is going to be uh, long-form content. I recommend it all the time, but I think long-form content is, is the only type of organic content and marketing that doesn't ever die. It lives on the internet forever. Um, it's the only one that can be found via search, which means that people who don't have social media or people who are looking for a problem to be solved can find you. And it's the most trustworthy or trust gaining approach to content. Somebody can listen to a, a, a soundbite from a podcast on a reel or watch a motivational reel or see an Instagram post and think highly of me. But if they see a 3,000 word blog on a single topic or a case study article about a client or the fact that my website has so much content on it, period, that's going to increase their trust with me so much more than anything else. And on top of that, you learn a lot when you write blogs. Like I knew a lot about cluster sets, but when I just wrote that blog in cluster sets, yeah. like I'm like the king of clusters now. <laughs> like you just, you wish. I know I'm not, but you have to like dig into so much other content research. Cause my totally. first thing is like, okay, if I'm going to write a you blog. think you may know, but then you learn even more. Yeah, or even like, I know this is true. Why is that? Like, why is that true? And then you have to dive into the physiology behind it totally. and you learn more. Um, and on top of that, like for me, if I'm like for clusters, I'm like, all right, I want to write a blog on this. First thing I do, how to do cluster sets on Google. And then you see what other people are writing and you see what they're missing and how you can improve it and basically one-up them. Um, 
And I think that there's just so much knowledge to be gained just from long form content. I think a lot of people, I mean, shit, it helps with these because people ask a question about a topic. And if I've written a blog on it, I know more than enough to answer your question now. Totally. You know what I mean? Um, and those are probably not the three that most people thought, I, I would that, say. Like, that ties in with educating yourself too. Yeah. Like, you're doing that at the exact same time. Exactly. And you really should be creating content while you're learning stuff because you as you're going through the, the courses and certifications or books, when you write it, because maybe you don't have a client that you can apply it to right now, but if you create content on it, you're applying it. And yeah. that's like ingraining it in your head, you know? Um, but I think those are the biggest things. Like, obviously, I always recommend, like, online coaches. Like, go be an in-person trainer, um, stuff like that. But it really, like, I think those three things and patience. That's it. Like, just be patient and consistently do those things. There's no secrets. There's no hacks. Like, most stuff is, like, honestly, I, I think success in anything actually boils down to, and this is not from me. I stole this from somebody. It, it comes down to being okay and, and being able to, really just consistently do the boring shit yeah. for a long period of time. Like things that, like, like literally I can think I was 18 years old. I was, that's 12 years ago. I was writing fitness blogs 12 years ago. <laughs> so like, like men's health or what's that for men's health or oh, I wish no for myself. Oh, I thought you were on the forums or something. Or Yeah. I was in the, I was in like teenage forums and yeah, I wasn't in them as a contributor. I was just a fly on the wall asking questions and, oh, gotcha. and talking and, and seeing what they were doing. Um, I was writing for the school newspaper and then eventually I got into bodybuilding.com and I, I ended up getting published in places. But when I was 18, it was just a shitty blog for myself. But the point is, is that's a long, consistent time of doing the boring work, Yeah, you know? And I've, I've written, I have blogs that are still bringing me traffic from 2015 and people forget like nothing you post right now is going to still bring you New leads, new reach, new traffic, new followers in seven years. Yep. I promise you it will not happen. Except for blogs. Maybe YouTube too. Yeah. Because Google owns YouTube now. And if it's a really good video, it probably will. It yeah. might. But definitely not Instagram. Definitely not TikTok. You know? Maybe yeah. not even podcasts. Because yeah. podcasts is still, I mean, you can SEO podcasts a little bit, but nobody listens to Google Play. Yeah. Unless you're listening to it right now. Totally. Shout out to you. <laughs> All right, cool. We've got one more here. It's from Adam Limbach. It says, for an average lifter, what are your thoughts on the use of both the trap bar and the landmine tool? Love it. I love both of them a lot. Um, I think they're very uh, pain-free would be a good word. Um, Anti-injury would be a good word. Uh, tools and in, in, uh, modalities or exercise variations for, for people. So like, for example, if you want to build your shoulders, we got shitty shoulder mobility. Um, if, or maybe you had a shoulder injury before, or maybe you just don't want to risk going overhead with a barbell while you're going heavy. A landmine press is amazing. It's going to build your shoulders. Great. Um, it's great for rows. It's great for a lot of single arm stuff and single leg stuff because the anchor point is set. So like a single leg RDL, you have to work on way more balance than it being anchored into a thing and you can hold it. Um, and the variations are endless. You can front load it. You can, um, do hack squats with it. You can do, uh, offset RDLs, regular RDLs, ipsilateral RDLs, lateral RDLs. Like there's so many endless. different RDL variations you can do for single leg work. It's super, super helpful. Um, there's a lot of isolation work. So I love it, especially for, for new people or, uh, uh, everyday people. Like it's just, it's very safe. It's very effective. It, it allows you to reduce injury risk while still overloading and creating a lot of hypertrophy. And because of the anchor point, it's a good, it's kind of like how, uh, like cables have constant tension. A landmine to an extent has constant tension too, which is a nice added variable. And then a trap bar, 
is amazing. I mean, it, again, it reduces the injury risk of a deadlift tremendously. It even reduces the injury risk of a squat because you can flip it upside down, sit upright, and you can do a squat with it. Mm. You're just pulling the squat from the floor. But if you, if you flip it upside down, you have to grab the handles low, and you let your knees glide forward over your toes, you're just starting from the bottom of a squat, literally. And it's way safer than putting a barbell on your back because if you can't finish the lift, you just drop it. Yeah. Um, and the position being loaded on the sides is safer than a deadlift being loaded in the front for your low back. So for everyday people... It's an amazing tool, especially because um, there's actually been research showing that there's no difference. There's no significant difference between trap bar and straight bar for strength. So if your goal is like, yeah, but I like I want to get as strong as possible. Great. Do the trap bar. Yeah. Like it shows that you can build just as so much strength because it's neurological. However, if you're going to be a power lifter and you have to compete, you're, you're not competing with a trap bar. So the skill specific aspect won't work because – like trap bar deadlifting will get you better at straight bar deadlifting, but if you have to compete with a straight bar, you better practice with a straight bar, you know. But everyday people, they're not powerlifters competing. Yeah. So um, I love them both. I, I use them often with myself and with clients over the years. I've used it so much. I will go with either of those over the the alternatives almost any time with everyday person. Totally. So cool. All right, that's it for today, guys. All right. Well, remember giantlifting.com. Head over there and use coupon code TCM ten to save ten percent. Uh, as always, we have a lot of free content on our website. Head over to tailcoachingmethod.com slash guides or slash blog. You can check out all the free articles. I just dropped a new one on cluster sets. It's really good and really jam-packed. Um, even give some actual programming examples. Um, and then uh, the guides are always free, long, and easily downloadable. Uh, last but not least... You can check out taylorcoachmethod.com slash online dash coaching if any of this resonated with you and feel you feel like you need help personally. If you want one-on-one -on -one attention, customization, and help with your diet or training, hit us up. We would love to talk to you completely free, no strings attached, and see if you were a good fit. As always, guys, we appreciate you, and we'll catch you next time.